and turn to Psalm chapter 110 as we read together. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 110, David writes for us. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I remember when I was younger, there was a, a, a book, at least I believe it was a book first. If you know much about me, you'll know that I always see the movie first before I ever read the book, and I usually don't read the book. But the, the, there was a movie that came out that I believe was based on a book. It was called Holes, and it was, it was starring Shia LaBeouf, who was real big at the time, uh, whenever I was coming up. And so this, this movie certainly intrigued me. I wanted to go see the movie Holes, and a friend of mine who, who got it before I did invited us over to watch it. And, and I remember he warned me about the movie. He said, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it's, it's kind of confusing because the movie doesn't just go in a linear pattern. It doesn't just start at the beginning of the story and move to the end. It is one of those films, which certainly is not the only of its kind, but the first one I was introduced to where, where the story kind of jumps around. You might see things that are happening in present time, but then it might jump back and, and sort of have a cut scene to something that happened earlier on in, in the life of this person or maybe earlier on in history. And then it might jump to the, to the future. It might jump to things ahead and jump all around. And this was one of those movies. It was a movie that didn't just start from the beginning and move its way to the end in sort of a singular flow of present time, real what's happening. It was a, a movie, one of those films that jumped around and you kind of picked up the story in pieces, Right? And you begin to make connections as you watch the film. And you realize, oh, that's what happened there. Oh, that's why they showed us this earlier on. Oh, that's how that sort of came together. And by the end of the film, a movie like Holes, you see at the end how all these things that you saw that happened so long ago, that happened earlier on in the movie, that happened you know, in real time, how they all came together and, and worked together like, like cogs of a, of a clock sort of all come together to make this really cool and interesting story and, and bring resolution. But it's given to you sort of in, in flashbacks and in looking forwards and these kinds of things. And I bring that up because the psalm that we have before us here today, Psalm chapter 110, does something very similar to that. We see in this psalm, not just David writing about an experience that he is having and extolling the Lord in a linear fashion of, of this is what has happened and, and you are good because you have done this and this and this. David is certainly extolling and praising God and his goodness and his glory and his majesty. But what we see in this psalm is, is similar to movies like that. Where David is, as he's writing, he's hearkening back to previous things from Israel's history. 
But not only is he hearkening back to those things, and not only is there a, a present context that David was certainly writing in, but he is also looking forward. He is predicting, he is prophesying of things that are to come, of things that are yet to be fulfilled for David and for God's people. This is the kind of psalm that we have before us here today. One that hearkens back to the promises God made to his people, but also one that looks forward to future fulfillment of those promises in this messianic king, the one who would come after David, the one who would be greater than David. This psalm itself is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. In fact, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes this psalm. Paul quotes this psalm. Peter quotes this psalm. The author of the Hebrews repeatedly quotes this psalm, Psalm 110. In fact, it's quoted over 26 times in the New Testament. It's a psalm that even as we read it on its own, without all the other references connecting it, when we read this psalm, we can't help but see Christ in this psalm. We can't help but see the fulfillment of these things in Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has come. Christ is the king, the one who has come to fulfill this prophecy and reign on the throne. And so today we will look at this psalm and see some of the characteristics of Christ's reign over the earth, specifically Christ's priestly reign over the earth, for that is what we have set before us here today in Psalm 110. If there was a, a title that I had for you today, it would be Christ's Priestly Reign. Whatever might be on the screen, that's what the title is. Christ's Priestly Reign is depicted for us here. And we will take a look today at some of the characteristics of his priestly reign from this psalm, Psalm chapter 110. We'll start in verses 1 and 2, where we see, which is point number 1, if you're keeping track, that Christ's reign is a reign that is over all. Verses one and two tells us, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse two says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. We know that for David, this prophetic psalm was looking forward. It was anticipating the day when one would come from his line who would rule as the true and right king of God's people, who would rule as the better David, the better king. But for us today, where do we stand in relation to this? David was looking forward to this one who was going to come and sit on the throne and reign. But what about us today? Are we still looking forward to this coming reign? I would contend to you, and I think it's confirmed by the New Testament, that Christ's reign is not something that we simply look forward to happening, but one that is a current and present reality. He is right now seated on the throne, seated at the right hand of the Father, just as was predicted in Psalm chapter 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I think the New Testament makes this clear and plain for us. Peter himself in his sermon at Pentecost says in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 through 36, speaking of and referencing this psalm, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received, having received 
from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, here comes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We see clearly from what Peter alone says in Acts chapter 2 that this reign that David was prophesying of, this reign that David was anticipating is a present reality for us that Christ right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, is ruling, is reigning. He is Lord of all. He is the king on the throne. In verse 2, we see this reiterated, not only that he is ruling, but that his rule and his reign extends over all the earth. The word rule here in verse 2 is the same Hebrew word that we see in Genesis chapter 1. When the Lord said to Adam and Eve that they were to be fruitful and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. The dominion that Adam and Eve were, were called to, the dominion that they were called to exercise, that is the same word that is here being used in Psalm 110, spoken of Christ. And we know how well Adam and Eve did it, fulfilling that mandate, right? We know how well human beings from then on have done at fulfilling that mandate, right? They failed. We have failed. We have sought to be obedient in this way, but man, being frail, being weak, has failed to exercise the kind of dominion that the Lord has called. And yet, we see that the one, the Messiah, the one from David's line who was coming, would utterly and completely uphold the commands that God gave. That he would rule in the midst of your enemies. Not just ruling over his people alone, not just ruling over those who are friendly to him, but ruling over all. In other words, the Lord's dominion, Christ's dominion, does not end with just those people who have accepted him. Just those people who willingly bend the knee. But his dominion, as we talked about last week, his lordship is over all. He is ruler over all, whether he is recognized as such or not. His sovereign rule is one that extends over all the earth. But what will his reign be like? We know that it is one that will extend to all, but what will it be like? Well, we see the answers to that, at least a, a glimpse throughout the rest of this psalm. Verse, or point number two, his reign is sweet to his people. We see in verse three, where he says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. We see here in verse three that the people offer themselves freely. As David is writing, he's anticipating this day when the people will offer themselves freely to Lord as a free will offering they will give up of themselves reckoning christ the messiah the one who's come after david as greater worth than anything else even greater worth than their own lives we oftentimes fail at this don't we of putting too much emphasis of reckoning certain things especially when they apply to ourselves 
as of more importance than other people and certainly of more importance than Christ many times. I know I'm guilty of this. I remember kind of early on in our marriage, one of the things that became a serious uh, sticking point for me and my wife for a moment was that she was notorious for eating my leftovers. We would go to a restaurant and we'd come back home and, and if I didn't eat my leftovers basically that night, there was a good chance the next day her leftovers and my leftovers were basically gonna be gone. And I would get so annoyed to the point, I, I don't say this with, with pride, although pride is what drove it, I would write my name on my leftovers <laughs> so that my wife would not eat it. I would write my name and then sometimes write, do not eat to save my leftovers because I didn't want her eating my leftovers. They're my leftovers. In a sense, those leftovers, that food was to me of more importance to me than my wife getting to eat those leftovers. That's a silly analogy, I know. But oftentimes, this does characterize the way we approach our relationship to the Lord, doesn't it? We're silly and petty and momentary and fleeting things we prioritize over offering ourselves to the Lord. In our lives, in our actions, in our speech, with our things, with our time, with our talents. You name it. And we are prone to over-prioritize ourselves rather than offering up ourselves freely to the Lord as what he calls here a free will offering. This kind of free will offering in the, the, uh, the law was one that was not required by the people. A free will offering in Israel was one that was, was not, you either do this or you are disobedient to the law. It was over and above. It was extra. It was one that they gave freely out of a, a love for the Lord and a heart for the Lord, not as an, out of an act of worship. So we too, as God's people, are called to give ourselves in the same way freely as a free will offering to the Lord, our whole selves as a sacrifice to the living God. This is what Paul writes about in Romans 12, that we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord. This is what we are called to. The second half of this verse brings to mind the beauty and imagery of things like morning light breaking through the night. As he says in the second part of verse 3, he says, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Some of these things that we read in the Psalms, some of this poetry, this poetic verse is, I think, difficult for us to understand. And, and certainly there are commentators and writers and theologians that will vary from one way to another on what exactly these things mean. But I don't think it's necessary for us to, to hone in completely and utterly to the point that there is no no room for distinction, but rather to see the imagery being described here. The imagery of morning light, the womb of the morning when the light first bursts through and breaks through the darkness. What does that sound like to us? Doesn't that sound like what Christ has done when he came to this earth? It sounds a lot like what John described in chapter 1. That he is the light and the, light, the life was the light of men. Light bursting forth into darkness, like the first light of the morning from the womb of the morning, and that the, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
again, for us, we maybe, we fail to feel the significance of this, and, and it might be hard for us to understand, but I, I, would, I would propose that perhaps the idea here is that in certain Arab climates that would not have been foreign to the readers of these psalms, the dew plays a much more important role in their life than it does for us today. We don't need the dew here in our culture, right? In our climate where we live today, the dew is not really that important. But in many climates, the dew is a primary source of of gaining water, of harvesting, if you will, water. That is, work has to be made to, to gather the dew so that you might have fresh water because with it comes life. So not only does life come upon the wings of the Messiah, but also life, both white and life he brings with him. These are the characteristics of Christ's reign. He brings light. He brings life. And we, as those who submit to his reign, are to offer ourselves as a freewill offering to this king, the one who brings life, the one who brings light, the one who breaks through the darkness. He is the one that is worthy of our praise, that is worthy of our worship, that is worthy of us being offered at his feet as we are called to do. And for all God's people, this is how his reign is taken. It is sweet to his people. Not only that, the next characteristic of his reign is that his reign is eternal. Point number three, his reign is eternal. We see this in verse four. Again, this verse alone is quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. Verse four says, the Lord has sworn has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Once again, we see here, as we already have, we see a looking backwards and at the same time, a looking forwards. This psalm, looking back to the promises of God that were made and looking forward to the fulfillment of those promises in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah, The author says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here we have in just a few verses the the doctrine of God's immutability. That is, that God does not change and cannot be changed. He is unchanging. He is immutable. And this is important to us. It matters to us that God is unchanging, that he is immutable, that he cannot be changed, and that he does not change his mind. Why? Because if our God was one who was prone to change, to changing his mind, then his promises would mean absolutely nothing, would they? There would be no surety in his promise. There would be no hope in his promises. But the Lord says that he has sworn and will not change his mind. What should this make us think of? I think the author here, I think David is is wanting us to think back to Israel's history, because he's writing this to the people of God. He's writing this to Israel originally, thinking and wanting them to, to recall to mind what God has sworn. What else has God sworn to his people? God has made a covenant with his people. He has made covenant promises to his people, such as with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. What kind of covenant did God make with Abraham? Was it a covenant that was just kind of It'll last for a few days. Here's this covenant. We'll see how it goes. What does God say about the covenant he made with Abraham? He tells us in Genesis, he made an everlasting covenant with him. 
God made a covenant with Abraham and he ratified it and confirmed it by himself as he himself passed through the sacrifices that were made. He swore by himself and therefore his promises are sure and good. This is what the writer to the Hebrews makes clear to us. Again, as we look back, but then look forward and see the fulfillment as the author of Hebrew writes. He says in chapter 6, verses 13 through 14, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. The Lord swore by himself, for there is nothing and no one higher to swear by. There is no greater oath, there is no greater promise that can be made than the Lord who has sworn by himself. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of the Messiah, are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Once again, this reference to Melchizedek causes us to do two things, right? As we stand here in Psalm chapter 110, there are two directions we look. We look back to the Old Testament reference reference to Melchizedek when he met Abraham and what happened in this interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham, the the father of the nations. All of us in Christ are, are children of Abraham, are we not? And what does the Bible say that Abraham did when he met Melchizedek? It says that he worshiped him. That Melchizedek was greater even than Abraham, the father of many nations. We look back and see this instance where he meets Melchizedek and he worships him and he gives him alms. And Melchizedek is described in the Old Testament as what? What is significant about Melchizedek? There's a few things. Well, one thing is that we see no reference in the Old Testament to any lineage or any offspring of Melchizedek. We see Melchizedek, and that's it. But what else is true about Melchizedek? That he was two things. He was both king, but he was also a priest. He was a priest unto the Lord, but he also reigned as king. He was a priest king. Dual office, something that is wildly unacceptable and uncommon to the Jewish people. In fact, anytime a king tried to extend his reach into that realm, tried to take on the mantle of the role of the priest, it never ended well for him, did it? This is something that would bring upon a king leprosy or, or even death or a downfall. And yet we see here this picture of one very different from the Levitical order of priests, one who was both priest and king. And so we see and look forward to the fulfillment of these things as the author of Hebrew writes for us in chapter 6 again, later on after what we just read in verses 19 through 20. The writer says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Specifically, Christ's high priesthood. Christ's priesthood. He as both king and priest. But especially his priesthood was not one like the Jewish people had ever known or seen in their history before. He was not a priest after the Levitical order, that which came through Aaron's line. 
He was a priest of a different order, of a greater order, one after the order of Melchizedek, one that was everlasting. He is the great high priest who is eternal, and there will never come another after him. You know why? Because there will never be another need for another great high priest. The Levitical priests, what did they do? Hebrews tells us they offered sacrifices over and over and over again. Why? Because by the blood of bulls and goats, the sins could never be removed. It was never enough. However many sacrifices they could make, there was always more that needed to be made, and sin could never be atoned for. That's why Jesus, the great high priest, is the only one seen in Hebrews chapter 1 as one who, after completing his work, sat down. The priests of the Old Testament had no time to sit. Sacrifices had to be made. The work had to be done for sin was never officially removed. It was never completely taken care of. But in Christ Jesus, the priestly king, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, it is finished. No more sacrifice need be made. Jesus is the priestly king after the order of Melchizedek who has an everlasting kingdom and everlasting reign as he now sits at the right hand of the father both to rule and to make intercession for his people point number four we see also that his reign while it is sweet to his people it is devastating to his enemies verses five and six take a certain turn as we read the lord is at your right hand he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter their chiefs over the wide earth. Here we have a contrasting picture of the king on the day of his wrath that looks very different from what we saw in verse 3, where we saw this king not on the day of his wrath, but on the day of his power. Now the king on the day of his wrath. Here we have a part of the biblical depiction of Christ's reign that people often will reject or despise, the part that people don't want to believe, the part that makes people very uncomfortable, that this king who brings such joy and life and peace to his people is the same one that will come and utterly wreck his enemies smashing them to pieces. That Jesus is king, is me, it means more than just a loving and gracious and kind ruler. Though that is true. He is loving and he is gracious and he is kind to his people. He is all of those things. But he is also a king who will crush his enemies and visit his wrath and his judgment upon the earth, leaving corpses in his wake. This is the picture we see of Christ. This is the one who came so long ago. The one who came as a baby. We begin to see that, you know, maybe Herod had reason to fear this king who was born in Israel. Because he was indeed the one who would crush his enemies. Some people, when you bring this up, say, you know, that's not, that's not my Jesus. That's not the... That's not the Savior I serve. And yet if that's true of you, then you are serving a Savior that is completely different than the Savior we see in the Bible. 
You are serving a Jesus that does not exist. You are serving a Jesus of your own creation because this is the Jesus we see in scriptures. One who is gentle and lowly and who is a great shepherd to his people, but one who will not tolerate sin forever, who will not allow his enemies to stand, but one who will come one day to utterly crush his enemies. Let me encourage you not to shy away from these things, these kinds of descriptions in Christ, but rather take hope in them. For indeed, there is no hope to be found in an impotent, weak, pacifistic king who does not defeat his enemies and ours. For if God's enemies are not defeated, then ours are left undefeated, and we have no hope. As we look at the last part of verse 6, the last line, the ESV reads this part as he will shatter, shatter chiefs over the wide earth. But I think a more appropriate way of reading this, for indeed it's the same Hebrew word, and in your footnote, if you have the ESV, you'll see that it also says that it could be translated as head. That the word chief could be translated as head. In other words, he will shatter the head over the wide earth. Again, Think backwards. Think backwards to where we might have heard this before. Where have we heard this promise before of one who would come who would crush someone's head? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The very first chapter, the very first chapters, the very first pages of Scripture where things immediately went wrong. And immediately after that, what does God do? Though he does give out punishments, the curse is brought into the world. What does he ultimately say? But that there is one who would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He would bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the one. As we are directed again here by the Holy Spirit, directing our attention back to, uh, to Genesis chapter 3, where the promise was made that there was one who would come who would crush the head of this serpent, who would crush the head of God's enemy. Jesus is the one. We see the fulfillment of it again. Looking forward now in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. John writes, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. God's enemies will be defeated. Satan, sin, and death will all be put under subjection in his feet. We do look forward to that day, though Christ now reigns on the throne, when ultimately all these things will be completed. All these enemies will breathe their last, their heads will be crushed, and their end will be. And we long for that day with hope as believers, don't we? looking to our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, not just as one who is gentle and lowly to us, which he is, but one who will crush his enemies and ours. And then point number five, his reign is sure and he is committed to it. His reign is sure and he is committed to it. In verse seven, we read this, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. As the head of the enemy is crushed, the head of the king is lifted up. 
is renewed. He is exalted by God and is able to complete his purposes and is committed to bringing them about. Again, this verse, as we read it, his will, excuse me, he will drink from the book, brook by the way. There have been a few interpretations offered as to the meaning of this phrase when he says he will drink from the brook by the way, but the one I find most compelling is the idea of a warrior, of a king, of a warrior in pursuit of his enemies who does not stop and sit down and make camp, who does not time to refresh himself, who does not take time and, and, and call it quits and, and try and catch back up later, but one who is committed to this end of chasing down and defeating his enemies, so much so that he does not stop but to drink by the way of the brook on his way to defeat his enemies. And in that, his head is lifted up and he will overtake his enemies. Christ's kingship is all-encompassing. His dominion is over all. His reign is never-ending. It is priestly and it is sure. You know, the only two places that we really see humanity pictured in this psalm, there's only two places where we see humanity depicted, and therefore there's only two options for us to fit into this psalm. The first is in verse three, offering themselves as a free will offering to the king. As believers, this is what we are called to do, right? To submit ourselves to the Lord, to repent of our sin, to trust in him and to bow the knee to him and give up ourselves unto him. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. This is what we are called to do. And this is one option for human beings in this psalm. The only other option is in verses five and six, ending up as corpses in the wake of his judgment. As believers, we are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord, to reckon anything that we have and anything that we are as nothing compared to Christ and his surpassing glory and his surpassing value. And so for believers, this is the call. Submit yourself to him. Offer yourself to him as a sacrifice unto him. Submitting to his will, his lordship in all areas of your life. But then we have to ask the question, who is an enemy of God? We might be quick to think of someone like Lucifer or Mohammed or Hitler or any number of cult leaders or the most evil people we can think of. Well, those are certainly enemies of God, right? But the word of God would have us realize that numbered among the enemies of God who will face his wrath are all those who are separated from Christ. All those who are still in rebellion and rejection of the one true God and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. All those who are not found in Christ are not found in some sort of neutral state. There is no such place. There are those either who offer themselves to the Lord as a free will offering, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, or those who will be corpses in the wake of his judgment and wrath. And as much as we might not like to think this way around Christmas time, it's necessary that we understand this truth about Jesus Christ and what he came to this earth to do. Because we do live in a place now between the day of God's power and the day of his wrath where the time of salvation is here. 
and the time for repentance is here. And if today you turn from your sin, repent and trust in Christ by faith for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins, then you can be found numbered with those for whom this is good news, for whom the reign of Christ is sweet. But heed this warning that if you reject him today, then the only other option for you is to face his wrath on that day. I would encourage you, if you're in this place today and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, that this is a true and right and coming reality that we know will come, that is prophesied here in Psalm and all throughout the scriptures, even by Jesus himself. There will come a day, just as the doors on the ark were closed, that there will no longer be a chance to repent. There will no longer be a chance to turn from your sin and to bow the knee to Christ willingly. So don't put it off. Trust in Christ today. Offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice and find refreshment in him. Find joy in him. Find life in him just as the, the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth. Be refreshed in Jesus Christ who came to save you from your sin. Let's pray.